Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to the free version of the Michael Savage podcast, and I'm going to keep it free for all of you. But there are many of you who would love to be able to listen to my show without any ads. I love ads, but many of you want to listen to the podcast free of ads. So we created something for you, a solution. We call it the Savage Premium. For less than the price of one flat, tasteless beer at your local bar, you can receive access to all of my podcasts going back years ad-free for just $3.99. That's at $3.99 a month. You'll get not only my ad-free podcast, but you will also occasionally receive access to material that is exclusive for members only, and I'm going to give you the list in a minute of what you've, what you've missed. You're going to get an occasional monologue from me, maybe a reading from one of my novels, sneak peeks of interviews before anyone else hears them, archive pieces dating back to 1994, many things that come up, you're going to get exclusive access to Michael Savage material. Details can be seen on my website, michaelsavage.com, and if you want to join all you got to do is go to glow.fm and search Savage Premium. That's glow.fm and search Savage Premium. Now, you will always have access to my free weekly podcast. I want to be clear about that. That's my promise to you. But if you want less ads and more Savage, join the Savage Premium Club today and never miss a spoken word of mine. It's glow.fm slash Savage Premium. You can find it on michaelsavage.com. And here's some of the stuff that you have missed so far. Michael Savage reading from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca. My words, my voice. Savage reads from one of his lost journals, Fiji, 1968. Savage's first drive-time show, Hour One. My interview with the Jewish gangster, very popular. I uh, read from my first written, published article, Who Was at the Helm, from 1965. It's heard nowhere but on my premium site. I read passages from my novel, Abuse of Power. Uh, we replayed Fat Al's Tuna. My Savage show from 324.94, the earliest show in the archive, 324.94. My interview with Donald Trump from 110.2011. 110.2011, while Mark Levin was mocking him and Sean Hannity was mocking him uh, and the others were mocking him, I was interviewing Trump. Much more. And remember, subscribers also get ad-free podcasts every week. The cost is less than a beer at a bar, and you get a better buzz with, with the Savage Premium. So go to, go to glow.fm slash Savage Premium for full access to ad-free podcasts and exclusive sound you'll not hear anywhere else. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Michael Savage Podcast. Today we're talking about Putin's mind 
not justifying his invasion, but trying to understand where he's coming from. Okay, I'm calling it a spiritual and territorial war. The latest news is that Putin spoke by phone today with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who urged the Russian president to agree to an immediate ceasefire and to let people escape if they can, okay, humanely. The Kremlin said this about the call. They said the German chancellor should know that Ukraine had, quote, unrealistic proposals. That means Zelensky is, of course, stiff-necked and still uh, wants to be in control while his country's burning, my opinion. By the way, Zelensky could have made all of this happen two weeks ago because that's how it's going to end up anyway. That's my opinion. So I'm not taking the Kremlin's side. But, you know, there's two sides to this war. So Putin says that Zelensky's dragging out negotiations. Kremlin says it was evacuating its own Russian civilians and accused Ukraine of committing war crimes by shelling cities in the east, which are largely populated with Russians. You didn't read that in the local paper. We don't know exactly what happened, but an official in Zelensky's office told the Associated Press, you know how reliable they are, that the main subject discussed was whether Russian troops would remain in separatist regions in eastern Ukraine after the war. Wow, at least Zelensky's calling it after the war. And where the borders would be. Okay, so he's negotiating while his people are burning, buildings are burning, and three million people have sought exodus from his nation. So the official, speaking on condition of anonymity, said Ukraine was still insisting on the inclusion of one or more Western nuclear powers in these negotiations and on legally binding security guarantees for Ukraine. In exchange, the official said, Ukraine was ready to discuss a neutral military status. Russia, meanwhile, has demanded that NATO pledge never to admit Ukraine to the alliance of NATO or station forces there. Let me tell you something. This could have been done four weeks ago. The whole war could have been avoided if Zelensky was not so stiff-necked and stupid. Because at the end of the day, after all the destruction and all of the emigration that's gone on in his poor country, he's going to settle for what? Putin wanted from the beginning. Whether you like it or not, that's going to be the truth. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Well, today we're talking about, I don't know how to put it, what is Putin thinking? There's a great article on this in the Jerusalem Post, which we will get to in a little while. But that's not what I want to talk about that. I want to talk about not the political thinking of Vladimir Putin, according to the article in the Jerusalem Post, which is a remarkable article, by the way. And the way they wrote it, and they don't justify what he's doing. This is the thing you have to understand. The article came out by Eliav Breuer, March 17th, and it's entitled, How is Putin Justifying Russia's Invasion of Ukraine? Explainer. The subhead says Russia invaded Ukraine on Feb 24, seemingly for no reason. A close look at Putin's speeches at its beginning shows the, quote, official reasons why he embarked on such a dangerous experiment. And I'm going to get into that in a minute. It's a very interesting article. I'll get into it in a minute. But I want to go back and dig deeper for you, my audience, for those of you who want to go deeper, if you think it's worthwhile, unless you'd rather listen to Anderson Cooper or perhaps uh, Sean Hannity or General Mark Levin. They, they know an awful lot about war because they're sitting on their fat behinds trying to set the world on fire because their ratings have never been so high. I found a couple of pages in the great book, The Decline of the West by Oswald Spengler, that I'm going to share with you right now. And I might call it something along the lines of how the traditional Russian mind sees the world. And I'm going to quote now from The Decline of the West, and I'll let you decide whether this has anything to do with Putin, Christianity, and degeneracy on the other side. See how I just cut it in half? Some would say this is just a war between the degenerate West and traditional Christians. I would say that's an overgeneralization. But I would also say that there's some truth in that, is that Putin does not want the perversion of the West to pollute Russia. Not that Russia is pure, but when you consider Zelensky was a vaudeville comedian, a perverted vaudevillian, who played the piano with his penis on stage to standing ovation, you might for a moment say, wait a minute, maybe he doesn't want the LGBTQ agenda invading Russia. Maybe he doesn't want fentanyl invading Russia. 
Maybe he doesn't want brainwashing of this type invading Russia. I don't know. So we look into the decline of the West, and I see these pages, and I thought they'd be of interest to you. And we'll see how this fits. It's a battle, he says, between the uh, late period megalopolitan and Western form of a problem. He's talking about Tolstoy. Whereas Dostoevsky, another great Russian writer, does not even know what a problem is. Tolstoy is an event within and of Western civilization. He stands midway between Peter and Bolshevism. And neither he nor these managed to get within sight of Russian earth. The thing they are fighting against reappears, recognizable, in the very form in which they fight. Their kind of opposition is not apocalyptic, but intellectual. I know this sounds a little dense and intellectual, folks, but let me just continue, and you can skip over some of this if you want. He writes this, Spengler, and remember, the book was written 100 years ago. Tolstoy's hatred of property is an economist's. His hatred of society, a social reformer's. His hatred of the state, a political theorist's. Hence, Tolstoy's immense effect upon the West He belongs in one respect as in another to the band of Marx, Ibsen, and Zola. This is all very intellectual for those of you who know history and literature. It may be of interest to the rest of you. I suggest you skip over it and you just go to two legs good, four legs bad. Spengler continues, Dostoevsky, on the contrary, belongs to no band unless it be the band of the apostles of primitive Christianity. His demons were denounced by the Russian intelligentsia as reactionaries, but he himself was quite unconscious of such conflicts. Conservative and revolutionary, quote-unquote, were terms of the West that left him indifferent. Let me repeat that. He's talking about the great author Dostoevsky, and he says, the words conservative and revolutionary were terms of the West that left him indifferent. Such a soul as Dostoevsky's can look beyond everything that we call social, for the things of this world seem to it so unimportant as not to be worth improving. Oh, what some statement that is. No genuine religion aims at improving the world of facts, and Dostoevsky, like every primitive Russian, is fundamentally unaware of that world and lives in a second metaphysical world beyond. What has the agony of a soul to do with communism? A religion that has got as far as taking social problems in hand has ceased to be a religion. I have to reread that line for those of you who will savor it. A religion that has got as far as taking social problems in hand has ceased to be a religion. That would be American modern, modern American Christianity. That would be modern American Reformed Judaism. You hear? A religion that has got as far as taking social problems in hand has ceased to be a religion. So these are no longer religions in America. They are religion incorporated. I'm going to go back to Spengler now and bounce off it again. But the reality in which Dostoevsky lives, even during this life, is a religious creation directly present to him. His Alosha has defied all literary criticism, even Russian. His life of Christ, had he written it, as he always intended to do, would have been a genuine gospel like the Gospels of Primitive Christianity, which stand completely outside classical and Jewish literary forms. Tolstoy, on the other hand, is a master of the Western novel. Anna Karenina distances every rival, and even in his peasant's garb remains a man of polite society. I'll read a little bit more from Spengler, The Decline of the West, which was written a long time ago, over 100 years ago, so then perhaps you can understand the traditional Russian mind and how vile it sees Zelensky and the West. Let's make it very simple for you. I'll continue now with Spengler. For those of you who want to, you can skip over this. Here we have beginning and end clashing together. Dostoevsky is a saint. Tolstoy, only a revolutionary. From Tolstoy, the true successor of Peter, and from him only proceeds Bolshevism, which is not the contrary, but the final issue of Petrinism, the last dishonoring of the metaphysical by the social, and the ipso facto a new form of pseudomorphosis. If the building of Petersburg was the first act of Antichrist, the self-destruction of the society 
formed of that Petersburg is the second. And so the peasant's soul must feel it. For the, for, the, for the Bolshevists are not the nation or even a part of it. Remember, this book was written right after the Bolshevik Revolution by Spengler. He says, for the Bolshevists are not the nation or even a part of it, but the lowest stratum of this Petrine society, alien and Western like the other strata, yet not recognized by these and consequently filled with the hate of the downtrodden, period. I have to repeat a piece of that. This was written by Spengler in 1918, right after the Bolshevik Revolution, where he says, for the Bolshevists are not the nation or even a part of it, but the lowest stratum of this society, alien and Western like the other strata. I think I need to pause on that for a, re a, a moment, because in America, communism appeals to the lowest strata of our society. The lowest strata of this society, whether they're educated or not, are those who find Bolshevism appealing or communism. So I have to say to you that uh, in one of my previous podcasts with Colonel McGregor, he said that Putin is not even a communist. And I joked and said, Bernie Sanders is more of a communist than Putin. Now you understand a little bit more about that. I'll continue and end with this from Spengler's The Decline of the West. The real Russian is a disciple of Dostoevsky, meaning a spiritual person. Although he may not have read Dostoevsky or anyone else, perhaps because he cannot read, he is himself Dostoevsky in substance. And if the Bolshevists, who see in Christ a mere social revolutionist like themselves, were not intellectually so narrowed, it would be in Dostoevsky that they would recognize their prime enemy. What gave this revolution, meaning the Bolshevik Revolution, its momentum was not the intelligentsia's hatred. It was the people itself, which without hatred, urged only by the need of throwing off a disease, destroyed the old Westernism in one effort of, of upheaval and will send the new after it in another. For what this townless people yearns for is its own life form, its own religion, its own history. Tolstoy's Christianity was a misunderstanding. He spoke of Christ and he meant Marx. But to Dostoevsky's Christianity, the next thousand years will belong. I'll pause there and let you ponder this for hours, days, and years to come. But to Dostoevsky's Christianity, the next thousand years will belong. Because I think that Putin's corruption, Putin's uh, attacks is really in a some way, in some way, his attempt to restore a spirituality to Russia or to protect what remains of spirituality in Russia from being completely engulfed by the pollution of the West. That's one man's opinion. I hope you enjoyed this. I'll be back in a minute right here on The Michael Savage Show. The Savage Nation. It's savage on demand. Welcome back to The Michael Savage Podcast. Today we are discussing, without justifying Putin's mind, a spiritual and territorial war, according to him, is what I think. This is not a justification, mind you. You have to understand that understanding does not mean confirming that you agree with the understanding. So I want to go into this a little bit more. We've just talked about Oswald Spengler's view of the Russian mind going back to uh, 1918, right after the Bolshevik Revolution. And it may or may not apply to Putin, but I'm sure it does in some way, or I wouldn't have put it in here. And I read from Decline of the West on the Russian Mind, written in 1918. Now, before we go on to a new article that just came out in the Jerusalem Post on how is Putin justifying Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I want to create a little bridge for you by mentioning that the great Russian author Dostoevsky wrote a book called Demons, which explains the demoralization of his time just as Yuri Bezmenov does explain the demoralization in the West right now. But he did this in Demons 200 years ago. For those of you who are history buffs, 
and want a little more depth than you're getting in most podcasts today of two legs good, four legs bad. It's become as bad as Democrats and Republicans that went on for 25 years. That's all you're getting today in the media or podcasts. So I'm trying to drill down a little deeper into what is going on. And again, I'll repeat it again. Dostoevsky's Demons explains the demoralization in Russia in his time, 150 years, 200 years ago, by the way, just as Yuri Bezmenov explained it when it was a big thing here in America. And I played Bezmenov's pieces many times over the years on my radio show. It's now become very popular. So now let's look into the Jerusalem Post article on how is Putin justifying Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'll I'll paraphrase as I read from this by Eliav Breuer. Again, he's not agreeing or justifying. He's explaining. So he says, what did Putin stand to gain by launching a major offensive? And he, he refers to two speeches Putin gave that provides a coherent picture of his motives and goals. His arguments can be classified into three main groups that build on each other. The Donbass argument, the legal argument, and the denazification argument. He says that the central pretext for Putin's invasion of Ukraine is the ongoing battle in Ukraine's southeastern Donbass region. And he says Putin laid out his view of Russia's actions in Crimea and the war in Donbass. And he says Crimea, Donetsk, and Luhansk freely made their choice to be part of Russia, he claimed. And Ukraine attempted to undermine their choice by activating terrorist cells and operating a terrorist on the ground with the international community support. Ukraine was unwilling to comply with the Minsk agreements and organized a blitzkrieg into the region, according to Putin. The residents of Donbass were suffering from indiscriminate killing, Putin said, with their only sin being that they opposed the 2014 coup, that he calls it a coup, and shift away from Russia. Therefore, Putin saw no choice and recognized the independence of the two regions at the end of his February 21 speech. The Russian parliament ratified the decision a day later. Donbass is proof that Russia is under attack by the West, claims Putin, and serves as a media justification to defend itself by launching the operation. The second argument that Putin gives to justify his invasion of Ukraine, according to the J Post article, is the legal argument. Putin's legal argument is based on Chapter 7, Article 51 of the UN Charter, which states, quote, nothing in the present charter shall impair the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense if an armed attack occurs against a member of the United Nations until the Security Council has taken measures necessary to maintain international peace and security. He goes on, the principle is simple. A state cannot strengthen its own security at the expense of the security of other states. So he writes, in Putin's eyes, this is exactly what Ukraine is doing. Finally, he says, Putin uses the denazification argument. What then does Putin mean when he blames Ukraine of Nazism? From time immemorial, quote unquote, Putin claimed, Ukrainians define themselves as being part of the Russian nation or part of the same religious body, Orthodox Christianity. He says modern Ukraine is merely a, quote, superfluous invention. Nationalism, he writes, meant that Ukraine came to believe that it had a right to secede from Russia. But for Putin, Ukrainian nationalism is illegitimate and is merely a new version of Nazism. He thinks that like the Nazis in Germany, radical nationalists took control of Ukraine and worked to distort the memory of Russia and Russian mentality. Ukrainian nationalists, he says, embezzled the legacy not only of Soviet Russia, but also of the preceding Russian Empire. He goes on. Listen to this. Putin said, quote, the purpose of this operation is to protect people who for eight years now have been facing humiliation and genocide perpetrated by the Kiev regime. To this end, we will seek to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, as well as bring to trial those who perpetrated numerous bloody crimes against civilians, including against citizens of the Russian Federation, unquote. This again is all from this article in the Jerusalem Post. How is Putin justifying Russia's invasion of Ukraine by Elia Breuer. This is not a justification for the war or his invasion. It's an explanation from the point of view of Vladimir Putin. I'm Michael Savage. I hope you appreciate my attempt to go into some detail as to the background for this war, which I still think is a spiritual and territorial war, according to Vladimir Putin. 
maybe I should conclude this section by asking a question. Is war the original human state? When have you not seen wars on this planet? Will there ever be a time when there are no wars? Others would say that this could be seen as a civil war. Of course, it isn't because Ukraine is now a nation with its own identity, own flag, own borders, own language, own culture. But, you know, there was a civil war in Ireland that was based on religion. Ireland, England, Protestants versus Catholics. There's somewhat of an interesting overlap in my mind between what is going on here on a much different scale as to what went on between Northern Ireland and England. What about a comparison with our own civil war? Is there any such comparison here? North versus South? To the outside, they look the same. Same race, almost the same religion. Brother killing brother. Ukrainians and Russians are indistinguishable to most Americans. Most Ukrainians speak Ukrainian and Russian. How do we look in on this and say that they're so alien to each other? What is this about? Well, it's a territorial war for sure. And of course, what's ironic to me, and of course, the hypocrites on the left would never agree with me. They claim that nationalism is evil. And here they are defending Ukraine's nationalism. They claim we should have no national identity and erase our borders, spit on our language and say we have no culture and yet glorify uh, the borders, language and culture of Ukraine. I think even the most average person listening to this podcast can understand the hypocrisy and the big lie. And when you drill down into who is behind this war, who triggered this war, and you see the names Newland coming up over and over again, a deep state plant of Obama. And then you see our weakling secretary of hate, whatever his name is, Blinky Blinken. And you realize he's been doing this ever since McCain engineered the coup in Ukraine. Then you realize there may be more to this than meets the eye. And that Zelensky is not the hero you may think he is. And Putin is not the 100% devil that you think he is. It's really not our business. How's that? At the end of the day, is this really our business? There are no concentration camps. The false analogy again, over and over again with the Holocaust and the Jews is ludicrous, absurd, and an outrage to the Jewish people who were uh, killed in the concentration camps. So please stop with the argument that it's another Holocaust and that we have to get involved. No, it's not a Holocaust. No, it's not genocide. Not at all. That's all I have to say. It's a foreign war, and we have no business being there. I'm Michael Savage. I'll be back in a minute. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. You know, a couple of days ago, I posted a picture of a page from the book Decline of the West by Oswald Spengler Polish in 1918. I published it all over my social media. I know it's a hundred year old book, boring and all of that, but there is so much in that book that I thought I'd post those two pages. There were a number of very intelligent people who replied on social media and many people never heard of this book. It's prescient, predictive. He's probably one of the greatest philosophers I've ever read. A couple of months ago, I featured this book, a piece of it anyway. It's over a thousand pages. I did a feature on the decline of the West on this podcast. I want to replay a part of that podcast again today to everyone listening to give all of you a better idea of what this great book is about. So if you're bored by this part of it, skip over it. If you're not bored and you want to drill down into more history, you got it. Thanks for listening. So today we're going to talk about a book called The Decline of the West by Oswald Spengler. He wrote it right after World War I, which was a very dismal time in human history, uh, particularly for a German who had just lost World War I and was facing the horrors of the League of Nations imposition of penalties upon the German people, loss of land, things of that nature. So although it is a dark and foreboding view of the future, in many ways, it was not wrong. If you look at America today, to bring it down home, as they would say in the 60s, with the crime spree, with the rise in almost all offices across the land, with very rare exception, of criminal left-wing fanatics. I saw a movie the other night 
on one of the sites, I don't know whether it was Amazon uh, Prime or whatever, called the SOM, S-O-M-M-E, which I was vaguely familiar about, which was the, a primary battle of World War One, where I think 60,000 soldiers died in one day because the generals sent them into machine gun fire that chopped them up like hamburger, caught on the barbed wire. And I looked at the boys and I saw the faces, not only of the actors, but of the documentary footage of the time that was inserted in that film, The Psalm. And they looked like the high school kids that I see on the fields in the high schools around me, fresh-faced kids, killed for nothing. You know, of all the wars of this century that I can think of that this nation has been involved in, World War I was basically a war for no reason other than the egos of fat old men in plain English. There was no reason for World War I. It started quite by accident, incidentally. And it went on and on and on. 60 million soldiers fought in the First World War, over 9 million killed. 6,000 dead soldiers a day. 6,000 dead soldiers a day. And the fact of the matter is, the mortality rate ranged between 6% and 30% of the soldiers, with the highest numbers of dead in the armies of Serbia, Montenegro, and the Turkish Empire. Well, that was mainly due to epidemics of cholera, typhoid, and smallpox. Uh, the other armies had vaccinated their troops against these diseases. You should know that. The vaccinations prevented the large-scale spread of cholera, typhoid, and smallpox in other countries. Infectious diseases did also spread in other armies, but with a lower mortality rate. So in absolute numbers of dead, the battles on all fronts claimed the highest number of casualties because of the technology of the machine gun, explosive artillery shells, and whatnot. The death toll among prisoners of war was about 5 to 10% of prisoners. I can give you all of the details and break it down by the nations and tell you how many died in each country. But in, in sum, I will put it to you in a very simple manner. Spengler wrote The Decline of the West right after World War I. Well, you can look at it in a global way and say to yourself that Western civilization came to an end as a result of World War I, where largely white men killed each other. The French killing Germans, the Germans killing French, the French and the Germans killing each other, the Russians dying, the English dying, and of course, Americans died. The flower of the West died in World War I. Needless to say, they did not reproduce. They did not create families. And it seems to me the heart and soul of the West went out of the West after World War I. It doesn't mean that there aren't children. It doesn't mean that there aren't brave men and women. It doesn't mean that the nations have disappeared. To me, it looks like the flower of the West was destroyed in World War I. You can look also at the civilian casualty deaths in World War I. The highest death rate was caused by hunger, deprivation, and disease. The civilian casualties suffered during military occupation and retaliation in Belgium, Serbia, Galicia, etc. Uh, and then there was the Armenian genocide in Turkey, which claimed between one to two million dead Armenians. You should never, ever forget the genocide against the Armenians by the Muslim Turks. Never forget that. It was a holocaust. One and two million Armenians slaughtered by the Muslim Turks. But in terms of military deaths, you can look it up for yourself. Great Britain and Ireland lost 750,000 young men. Belgium lost 38,000. France lost 1.3 million dead men. Greece, 25,000. Italy lost 460,000. Russia lost between 1.8 to 2.2 million men. The United States of America sacrificed 117,000 men. Australia, 62,000. New Zealand, 18,000. So we can go down the list. It's a terrible thing to look at. 1.5 million dead soldiers in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. 2 million dead Germans. 325,000 dead Turks. 88,000 dead Bulgarians. And for what? What was gained by World War I? I would say nothing. The only thing gained from World War I was the death of the West. And the only winner was China. Of course, they didn't know it at the time. The death of the West, the decline of the West, we seem to be in a death throes here in the United States of America and Western Europe, where we are literally committing suicide. We're throwing ourselves off the cliff, inviting in alien populations that have no sympathy whatsoever for our borders, language, or culture.
So that brings us back to the book again on servitude and freedom. That's right. Spengler wrote in his thousand page book, The Decline of the West, on servitude and freedom. And he starts by talking about flowers, how at night, one after the other, close in the setting sun. Strange is the feeling that then presses in upon you, a feeling of enigmatic fear in the presence of this blind, dreamlike, earthbound existence, the dumb forest, the silent meadows, this bush, that twig, do not stir themselves. It is the wind that plays with them. Only the little gnat is free. He dances still in the evening light. He moves whither he will. Beautiful writing, and yet it's in translation, no less. A plant is nothing on its own account. It forms a part of the landscape in which a chance may to take root. The twilight, the chill, the closing of every flower. These are not cause and effect, not danger and willed answer to danger. They are a single process of nature, which is accomplishing itself near, with, and in the plant. The individual is not free to look out for itself, will for itself, or choose for itself. And he's writing about freedom and servitude. And then he compares the plant with the animal. Listen very carefully, because we'll get to the human, and you'll see that they've turned us into inanimate objects here in the West. It's really, it's chilling when you think about it. An animal, he writes, on the contrary, can choose. It is emancipated from the servitude of all the rest of the world. This midget swarm that dances on and on, that solitary bird still flying through the evening, the fox approaching furtively the nest, these are little worlds of their own within another great world. An animacule in a drop of water, too tiny to be perceived by the human eye, though it lasts but a second and has but a corner of this drop as its field, nevertheless is free and independent in the face of the universe. The giant oak upon one of whose leaves the droplets hangs is not. And then he goes on to servitude and freedom. One more paragraph on this. I know it's lengthy, but it's important. Servitude and freedom, he writes, this is in last and deepest analysis the differentia by which we distinguish between vegetable and animal existence. Yet only the plant is wholly and entirely what it is. In the being of the animal, there is something dual. A vegetable is only a vegetable. An animal is a vegetable and something more besides. A herd that huddles together, trembling in the presence of danger. A child that clings weeping to its mother. A man desperately striving to force a way into his God. All these are seeking to return out of the life of freedom into the vegetal servitude from which they were emancipated into individuality and loneliness. It's astonishing writing, and I could talk about it for a length of time, but I think you would be bored. Seeking to return out of the life of freedom into the vegetal servitude from which they were emancipated into individuality and loneliness. So as we achieve individuality, we, achieve lo we, we find ourselves in loneliness. But that is the price of freedom. And that goes to the political world we are living in today, where we have been turned into nothing but vegetables for lying vermin like Fauci and the others to mask us and shoot us up with drugs and tell us it's for our own good. My friends, we are in a very bad place right now with great tension in the United States. We're in constant tension, constant tension in this nation and in the West. You see it around the world. You see it in France, where the European Union put up a flag for the EU. Of all places, on the Arc de Triomphe, which is built in memory of the war dead, the vermin like Macron, the internationalists like Macron, put up a flag that erased the French national identity. And only the right wing stood up to them, so-called right wing. If you're a nationalist, you're called every name under the sun. And so the right wing stood up to that left wing bum, Macron, and made him take down the EU flag from the Arc de Triomphe. And here in America, 34% of Americans say violence against government justified. Fears of political schism and the pandemic. Home of borders, language, culture, the savage nation. We're living in a crypto-fascism 
that's been brought about on many fronts. And the fact is, it's going to take people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and people like you to stand up to the fascists who are not only erasing the memory of the United States of America, purging the military of patriots. It's a repeat of history. It is reminiscent of Germany during the Weimar Republic, where a socialist pacifist government led to Hitler. We now have a semi-senile weak Neville Chamberlain stooge in the White House. And it's odd that we have not only a socialist pacifist president, but a senile, a semi-senile socialist pacifist president, all the while targeting anyone in America who stands up to the growing robbery of our freedoms. I'll go on with my readings and my eulogy for America here. I hate to say eulogy on uh, this podcast, but I want to read next about the Jews, and I will do so in a moment. And the reason is, well, why about the Jews? Why do we have to read about the Jews? Why not about Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam? Because Judaism is the cornerstone religion of the three major monotheistic religions of the world. Judaism first, then came Christianity derived from Judaism, then Islam derived from both religions with their own twist on the Muhammad. So these are considered monotheistic religions that believe in one God, the one true God. That's why they're called monotheistic religions. We're not talking about the religion of the Aztecs. We're not talking about the composite of Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism. We're talking about Judaism because it's the cornerstone of the basis of the United States of America and all of Western Europe. And for that reason alone, I want to read to you what Spengler wrote about the decline of the West, what he wrote about Judaism, because it's been misinterpreted for decades now. People said that Hitler was a fan of Spengler because he put down Judaism. The exact opposite is true, as you will hear. Now, I can't read it all to you because there's many pages on the Jews. So now we move on to what Spengler said about the Jews. Why? Well, we're talking about the decline of the West. So we have to talk about what the West is. And the West began in many different ways, in many different places. But the religion of the Jewish people is the foundation for the religion of Christianity. Then Islam derived from both religions with their own twist. So who are they? According to Spengler, we will talk about that. The religion of Jewry is a Falah religion since the time of Yehuda ben Halevi, who, like his Islamic teacher Al-Ghazali, regarded scientific philosophy with an unqualified skepticism and refused to it any role save that of handmaid of the orthodox theology. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, he then compares it to the transition from Middle Stoicism to the later form of the imperial period and to the extent extinction of Chinese speculation under the Western Han Dynasty. That's interesting. Still more significant, he writes, is the figure of Moses Maimonides, who in 1175 collected the entire dogmatic material of Judaism as something fixed and complete in a great work of the type of the Chinese Li Qi, entirely regardless of whether the particular items still retained any meaning or not. That's interesting. Hmm. So, who are the Jews, according to him? Well, we have to go back to what he writes about them and where they came from. And we'll do that in a moment. But, you know, there's thousands of pages, a thousand pages here. And I guess I could cut it down to the basis here. And I'll just read pieces from this. And he talks about the Jewish people and where they came from and how they began, and how they were a, a, a derivation of the Magians, which is a member of the Zoroastrian priestly caste of the Persians. I'm not so sure that that's true, but it's what he wrote. He writes that in their Merovingian period, approximately the last five centuries before the birth of, before the birth of Christ, both Jewry and Persia evolved from tribal groups into nations of Magian caste without land, without unity of origin, and even so soon with the characteristic ghetto mode of life that endures unchanged today for the Jews of Brooklyn, 
and the Parsis of Bombay alike. Big sweeping statement. In the springtime, remember, he writes about seasons and how the West is in its winter and decline. Now we're talking about the Jews. In the springtime, first five centuries of the Christian era, this landless consensus spread geographically from Spain to Shantung. This was the Jewish age of chivalry and its, quote, Gothic blossoming time of religious creative force. The latter or later apocalyptic, the Mishnah, and also primitive Christianity, which was not cast off till after Trajan's and Hadrian's time, are creations of this nation. It is well known that in those days the Jews were peasants, artisans, and dwellers in little towns, and big business was in the hands of Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans, that is, members of the classical world. About 500 begins the Jewish Baroque, which Western observers are accustomed to regard very one-sidedly as part of the picture of Spain's age of glory. The Jewish consensus like the Persian, Islamic, and Byzantine now advances to an urban and intellectual awareness, and thenceforward it is master of the forms of city economics and city science. Tarragona, Toledo, and Granada are predominantly Jewish cities. That's interesting. The Spanish cities were predominantly Jewish at that time. I didn't know that. Jews constitute an essential element in Moorish high society. Their finished forms, their esprit, their knightliness, amazed the Gothic nobility of the Crusades, which tried to imitate them. That's interesting. So the Christians, when they met them, tried to imitate them. But the diplomacy also, and the war management, and the administration of the Moorish cities would all have been unthinkable without the Jewish aristocracy. Think about that very deeply, which was every whit as thoroughbred as the Islamic. Now you understand why Israel has thrived as a Jewish state and why the states that are 100% Islamic and have driven out Jews and Christians alike have collapsed into a medieval form of mud. My words. Okay. So he goes on to talk about the uh, spiritual significance. And he says there occurred a Puritan movement which rejected the Talmud and tried to get back to the pure Torah. That's interesting. Rejected the Talmud and tried to get back to the Torah. The community of the Curiates, preceded by many a forerunner, arose about 760 in northern Syria, the selfsame area which gave birth a century earlier to the Polician iconoclasts and a century later to the Sufism of Islam, three Magian tendencies whose interrelationship is unmistakable. He goes on in his book. While the Jews were already almost Fellahin, the Western peoples were still almost primitives. The Jew could not comprehend the Gothic inwardness, the castle, the cathedral, nor the Christian, the Jew's superior, almost cynical intelligence, and his finished expertness in money thinking. That's interesting. There was mutual hate and contempt, due not to race distinction, but to differences of phase. Now, we have to pause on that. He writes, there was mutual hate and contempt between the Christian and the Jew at the time, due not to race distinction, not to race distinction, but to differences of phase. Are you listening to that? Think about that very deeply. Into all the hamlets and country towns the Jewish consensus built, it's essentially megalopolitan, proletarian ghettos. The Judengas is a thousand years in advance of the Gothic town. Just so in Jesus' days, the Roman town stood in the middle of the villages on the lake of Gensareth. And then he talks about the, uh, a certain period in which uh, the legend of the wandering Jew arose. It meant a good deal for a Scottish monk to visit a Lombard monastery, and nostalgia soon took him home again. But when a rabbi of Mans, in 1000, the seat of the most important Talmudic seminary of the West, or of Salerno, betook himself to Cairo or Merv or Basra. He was at home in every ghetto. In this tacit cohesion lay the very idea of the Magian nation. Although the contemporary West was unaware of the fact 
It was for the Jews, as for the Greeks of the period, and the Parsis and Islam, state and church and people all in one. Listen to that. State and church and people all in one. We've heard about church and state here in America, the separation of church and state. At that time, for the ancient peoples, state and church and religion were all in one. This state had its own jurisprudence, and what Christians never perceived its own public life and despised the surrounding world of the host peoples as a sort of outland. Hmm. Wow. In 1799, the leading thinker among the Eastern Hasidim, Signor Salman, was handed over by the rabbinical opposition to the Petersburg government as though to a foreign state. That's a very important point, that the uh, Jewish people at that time turned over their Hasidic people to the Russian government as though to a foreign state. Jewry of the West European group had entirely lost the relation to the open land, which had still existed in the Moorish period of Spain. There were no more peasants. The smallest ghetto was a fragment. The rabbi is the Brahmin or Mandarin of the ghetto, and a coolie mass characterized by civilized, cold, superior intelligence and an undeviating eye to business. Wow, what a sentence that is. He writes, but this phenomenon, again, is not unique if our historical sense takes in the wider horizon for all Magian nations have been in this condition since the Crusade period. The Parsi in India possesses exactly the same business power as the Jews in the European American world and the Armenians and Greeks in Southern Europe. Hmm, fascinating. And then he talks about the Romans in the early Arabian world. He says, in the last instance, indeed, the conditions were the exact reverse of those of today for the Jews, quote unquote, of those days were the Romans. And the Armenian felt for them an apocalyptic hatred that is very closely akin to our West European anti-Semitism. The outbreak of 88, in which at a sign from Mithridates, a hundred thousand Roman business people were murdered by the exasperated population of Asia Minor. And it was a veritable pogrom. Race warfare? No. Class warfare, yes. Michael Savage, a host like no other. I'll continue with a little bit more because there's so much and it's unnecessary that we read more about this. It's important only that we know the origins of our civilization. That is Western civilization and our religions. One part of Eastern Jewry conforms in bodily respects to the Christian inhabitants of the Caucasus and other to the South Russian Tatars and a large portion of Western Jewry to the North African Moors. What has mattered in the West more than any other distinction is the difference between the race ideal of the Gothic springtime, which has bred its human type, and that of the Sephardic Jew, which first formed itself in the ghettos of the West and was likewise the product of a particular spiritual breeding and training under exceedingly hard external conditions. He goes on. This feeling of being quote-unquote different is the more potent on both sides, the more breed the individual possesses. That's a phenomenal sentence. The feeling of being different is stronger the more deeply the individual is bred in their particular religion. He goes on, it is want of race and nothing else that makes intellectuals, philosophers, doctrinaires, utopists, incapable of understanding the depth of this metaphysical hatred, which is the beat difference of two currents of being manifested as an unbearable dissonance, a hatred that may become tragic for both. Now think about this. This was published in 1918, and he talks about the differences that are so strong that it creates an unbearable dissonance, a hatred that may become tragic for both. What happens soon after 1918? Huh? What happened soon after 1918, after the Germans? Remember, this book was written after the defeat of Germany in World War I, and it was a widely popular book. What happened was the country was weak. The Weimar Republic was very much like America today. And after that, there arose a strong man, a Hitler, a hatred that may become tragic for both. 
The same hatred as has dominated the Indian culture is setting the Indian of race against the Sudra. During the Gothic age, this difference is deep and religious, and the object of hatred is the consensus as religion. Only with the beginning of the Western civilization does it become materialist and begin to attack jewelry on its intellectual and business sides on which the West suddenly finds itself confronted by an even challenger. That, again, is a very powerful few words where the West suddenly hates the Jew because it's a challenge to its dominance. You see how that works? There's so much more you should read for yourself when he writes about the Baal Shem, the founder of the Hasidim sect, who was born in Vilnius about 1698, and he said the Baal Shem was a true Messiah, a true Messiah arose. His wanderings through the world of the Polish ghettos, teaching and performing miracles, are comparable only with the story of primitive Christianity. There is so much here that I cannot read. As you could see, there's too much density of thought packed into this small number of pages in the decline of the West. Maybe I should end this little piece on the Jews, which is contained, by the way, in this chapter on Pythagoras, Muhammad, and Cromwell in the decline of the West in his wanderings and his writings. I will. I'll read this to you. Today, this Magian nation, with its ghetto and its religion itself, is in danger of disappearing. It's chilling when you hear about this now when it was written. In danger of disappearing, not because the metaphysics of the two cultures come closer to one another, for that is impossible, but because the intellectualized upper stratum of each side is creating, is ceasing to be metaphysical at all. Because the intellectualized upper stratum of each side is ceasing to be metaphysical at all. Boy, is that true. It has lost every kind of inward cohesion. And what remains is simply a cohesion for practical questions. In the moment when the civilized methods of the European American world cities shall have arrived at full maturity, the destiny of Jewry, at least of the Jewry in our midst, that of Russia is another problem, will be accomplished. Did you hear that? In the moment when the civilized methods of the European American world cities shall have arrived at full maturity, the destiny of Jewry will be accomplished. So he's saluting the Jewish people for its civilization, for bringing civilization, and for creating the civilization of the European American world cities. I'll pause right there. You can read this for yourself. Try not to get the cliff notes because they're written by people who don't usually understand what they're summarizing. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I hope this has been informative for you. The imbecile running the United States of America into the ground, surrounded by the most vicious anti-American, anti-white in particular, left-wing scum I have ever seen imaginable. I never thought they would arise in my time. I knew we had a crypto-socialism under Bush. In fact, I called Bush a socialist. And I knew what, uh, what Biden was. I knew he was nothing but a, a hat carrier for the more powerful forces of the Democrat Party who waited his time long enough until eventually they put him into the position that he's in now. And obviously he's senile and he does whatever he is told to do. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing. And he's being ruled by the most vicious left-wing group imaginable in a nation as vast as ours. Daily hatred of the white man, daily hatred of the white race, daily racism from the newspapers and the media without a peep coming out of the mouth of the senile socialist pacifist in the White House. Is this a repeat of history? Is it reminiscent of Germany during the Weimar Republic? with a semi-senile, weak Neville Chamberlain-like stooge in the White House and what follows? Look at the news. Look at the chaos. Look at the violence. Look at the rebellions. And I'll let you decide what follows. Maybe that's enough for this podcast. This is not so much a podcast that is acting to be uh, a prediction. After all, I'm Michael Savage. I'm not Nostradamus. I'm not de Tocqueville. I'm certainly not Spengler. I'm a mere podcast. I'm a mere podcaster, author, and popular thinker. What's next? 
It's anyone's guess. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.